listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. something a little bit different. Not only did we just have three songs before the sermon, I'm going to have you keep standing. If you would grab your Bible, Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. As you're turning there, just briefly while we're doing this, we don't do this every time, but um, I think from time to time it is helpful for us to open God's Word, to stand as we read it, and just remember that when we open the Bible, when we read the pages of Scripture, it is the God of the universe speaking to us. This is what we need. We're going to listen to him, hear what he has to say to us this morning. Matthew 26, starting in verse 57. Wait till the pages stop flipping there. And then those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. And Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. And going inside, he sat down with the guards to see the end. And now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus that they might put him to death, but they found none, though many false witnesses came forward. At last, two came forward and said, this man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and to rebuild it in three days. And the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, I adjure you by the living God. You tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so. But I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witness do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? And they answered, He deserves death. And they spit in his face and struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? And now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus, the Galilean. But he denied it before them all saying, I do not know what you mean. Let's pray together. Lord, we're thankful that week in and week out as we gather in this room, it's not up to us to do enough or be enough to earn your love, and yet our love is based on who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. Thank you that when we open your word, you speak to us. I pray for the folks in this room, God, that you would encourage our hearts through what you have to say to us, challenge our hearts through what you have to say to us. Ultimately, Spirit, would you speak to us? Would you use me? to proclaim your word with boldness and in truth. I pray for the folks in this room, God, that that your word would fall on fertile soil in their hearts, that it might bear fruit for your kingdom. God, we need your help. Holy Spirit, would you help us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, as you have a seat, let me say good morning. Uh, Hope you are doing well. My name is Clint. If we haven't had the chance to meet, I'm one of the pastors on staff and I have the opportunity to preach. Uh, God's word to us this morning. Um, We have, as a church, been working our way through the Gospel of Matthew for over a year now. Uh, This is week 57, if you can believe it. 57 weeks. After today, we have four more weeks in this series. We're going to finish chapter 26 this morning, God willing, and uh, we have chapter 27 and 28 to go. But what's interesting about the Gospel of Matthew and all the other, uh, other three Gospels is 
out of the 89 total chapters, okay, so there's 89 chapters in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Out of those 89 chapters, 30 of them focus on the final week of Jesus' life. That's more than a third, okay? So I checked my bracket last night. That's more than the percentage of games that I got right in the bracket. Um, focus on the final week of Jesus' life, which means this is important. All the parables, all the miracles, all the teachings of Jesus have been leading us to this week and to this moment in redemptive history. And in Matthew's gospel, this week, the final week of Jesus' life starts back in chapter 21, which we did in January. And let me just draw us into what we just read on chapter 26. So this week is the week of Passover, right? A week where for centuries, every year, hundreds and thousands of Jews would come to Jerusalem and come to the temple to offer sacrifices, remembering the last night that the, that the people of God lived under Egypt as slaves. And they remembered at Passover how because of the blood of a lamb, they were passed over. Their lives were spared by God and they were rescued out of slavery in Egypt. But there's something about this year that was different, right? This year, there were these people in the streets of Jerusalem telling stories about a rabbi from up north who could not only did he teach with authority, but he could heal diseases and he could calm storms. And the word on the street is, not only can he cast out demons, but he, he actually raised his friend Lazarus from the dead. This year was different because Matthew 21 says that on Sunday of that week, Palm Sunday is what we call it, this rabbi rides into the city of Jerusalem on a donkey, which is the exact way the prophet Zechariah about 500 years before said, this is how you'll know the Messiah's come, that he'll ride into the city on a donkey. Again, something about this year was different. On Monday, Matthew says that Jesus goes into the temple and he sees instead of it being a place of worship and prayer, that it had been turned into a place to buy and sell, a place where religious leaders were actually profiting from those who had come to worship God. And so Jesus responds, he's filled with righteous anger and he flips over the tables of those who bought and sold and he drives out the money changers out of the temple. And then he goes back to Bethany that night, which is about two miles east of the city of Jerusalem, and he spends a night there. It's where he liked to spend the night. It's where his friends Mary, Martha, and Lazarus live, the same guy he raised from the dead. On Tuesday, he goes, leaves Bethany, goes back in the temple. He's teaching again. He's met by religious leaders who are publicly trying to shame him. They're trying to show him and prove to him how they're the ones who have the authority. They're the ones who are in charge, but Jesus begins to rebuke them and calls them hypocrites, a word that means pretender or actor. He says things like this to them, chapter 23, verse 13. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces, and you neither enter yourself or allow those who would enter to go in. So as you might imagine, frustration and animosity had been building in the religious leaders toward Jesus for a while now, but when he starts to say these types of things, it begins to bubble over to the degree that on Wednesday, we're told in chapter 26, verse 3, that as Jesus continued teaching in the temple... Then the chief priests, the elders, the people of, uh, gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name is Caiaphas, that's important, we'll see a lot of him today. They did this, they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. On Thursday, Jesus and his disciples were gathered together to celebrate the Passover meal, which is something they had done before in previous years. So this was routine for them, but again, this year was different. Because this time, as they were remembering the first Passover in Egypt, Jesus puts himself in the story. He stands up from the table and he takes bread and he takes the cup, which they knew was representative and symbolic of what God had done in the past. And he says to them, God is doing something new. He takes the bread, which was symbolic of the manna that God had provided for his people in the wilderness. And he breaks it. He said, this is my body broken for you. Meaning God is, is, is giving us a new provision, a better provision. 
He takes the cup, which was symbolic of the sacrificial lamb under the old covenant. He says, this cup is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. He says, this is a new covenant. God is doing something new. And as they're trying to wrap their minds around what Jesus said and what it all meant for them, Jesus leads them out of the room that they were in. He leads them to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. And it's there that Jesus wrestles with the grief of what he would be experiencing in just a few hours. Matthew 26, verse 39, he fell on his face and he prayed saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. So Jesus resolves in his heart to be obedient, uh, Paul says in Philippians 2, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And as he finishes praying, he knows it's getting late. It's probably after midnight at this point. And so he goes to get his disciples and he finds them asleep. And he says to them, verse 45 will be on the screen, take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hand of sinners. If you read the Gospel of John, all through the Gospel, it says that these religious leaders, again, because they had this animosity and frustration toward Jesus, they were seeking to arrest him, and they sought to kill him, but it says they couldn't because his hour had not yet come, right? The appointed time for his death had not yet come, so they couldn't do anything about it. God's the one in control, but here Jesus says, my hour has come. And he's betrayed by Judas, arrested by a mob that Judas brings with him, and he's led away to be put on trial by the high priest, which is what we read earlier. Verse 56 says, then all the disciples left him and fled. And those who had seized Jesus led him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders had gathered. Again, a third of the gospels zoom in on this final week of Jesus's life and this moment in redemptive history where in the middle of the night, Jesus is arrested and put on trial, falsely accused, wrongly convicted, and then ultimately sentenced to death on a Roman cross. And what's interesting about the way the gospel, or the the scriptures, the four gospels tell this story is in every single one of them, right before we get to the cross, we have an interjection of a story about one of Jesus' disciples, a man named Peter. And it's significant that all four gospel writers include this account, which means there's something the Spirit of God wants us to see here, wants us to know, interjects this story about Jesus. And and Matthew hints at it in verse 58. says, and Peter was following him at a distance, following Jesus as he's being brought in on trial. He went as far as the courtyard of the high priest, and going inside, he sat with the guards to see the end. Sat with the guards to see the end. If you have a different translation, the end might say the outcome, and what it means is, Matthew's saying Peter was following Jesus because he was interested. He wanted to see how things were going to play out. He just didn't want to be seen doing it. This is about self-preservation in Peter. We're going to see this more in detail here in a moment. But ultimately what happens is Peter denies Jesus three times. And if you've been around church or you're familiar with your Bible, that's likely not new information to you. So if I gave a sheet of paper for every single person who came in here, I said, hold on to it, wait till you get to this moment, and you open it, and it said, uh, Jesus denies Peter three times, true or false? And then I had you pick one and then drop it in the box. My guess is almost every single one of us would get it right. This is not new information to us, but again, all four gospel authors include this narrative. So the question that I want us to answer this morning is why? Why is this in the Bible? Why do all four gospel authors highlight Peter's failure and his denial of Jesus? Where we need to start is to understand what it means to deny someone in the first place. So an English definition of the word deny is to refuse to admit or to acknowledge. To refuse to admit or to acknowledge. It's a good definition because the word, the the Greek word that's translated deny, Peter denies Jesus, is actually twice translated refuse in the New Testament. So refusal to admit or to acknowledge Here's an example about denial. Maybe this will help. 
Whenever I meet somebody new, or even when I don't meet them, I just pass a stranger in the street, I get asked one of two questions. One, can you guess? How tall are you? And people ask like they're offended. Like I did something wrong just because I walked by. I didn't do anything, okay? How tall are you, you know? Um, the other question is, um, do you play basketball? Right? The answer is uh, yes. Okay, I like basketball. Um, so it's March, so there's a lot of basketball happening. I don't know if you know, there's a tournament going on right now. And if you watch it at some point, I heard this last night, you will hear the word denied. He denied him. One of two things happens if you hear this. There's a guy is going to be playing defense, and he's denying him the ball, right? He's denying him the opportunity to get the ball to do what the goal is, which is score the ball. Or you're going to see somebody who has the ball, and they're driving. It looks like they're going to score, but they're, the shot's blocked, and they're denied, right? That's a type of denial, but this is different. Peter denying Jesus doesn't mean that Peter refused to allow him to accomplish something, because Peter doesn't stop Jesus from going to the cross. He actually tries, if you remember, Back in chapter 16, when Jesus foretells his death and resurrection, he says, hey guys, listen, it's about to go bad. The chief priests and the scribes are gonna, I'm gonna be handed over into their hands. They're gonna kill me. And then he says, on the third day, I'll be raised. But before he can even say that, Peter goes, no, 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 no. Far be it from you, Lord. It ain't happening. I won't let it. So he tries to stop him. And what's Jesus say? Get behind me, Satan. Right? So Peter doesn't deny Jesus from going to the cross. But remember the definition, two components, a refusal to admit and acknowledge. And Peter's denials of Jesus has both of these. He refuses to acknowledge who Jesus is. He refuses to admit that he has a relationship with him. Two components of this denial, identity and relationship. We're going to see the relationship component in a moment. I'm going to start with the identity piece, right? Who is Jesus? In this passage, there's three things that Jesus declares about who he is. From the mouth of Christ, he declares about who he is. Look at verse 59. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony about Jesus, against Jesus, that they might put him to death, but they found none. So remember, Jesus is on trial before Caiaphas, the high priest, and and there's no hidden agenda here. Why are they seeking testimony? They don't even care if it's true or not. They want him dead. They want to arrest him. They want to kill him. Verse 60 says they found none, which means the verdict is set before the trial even starts, although they're just looking for the, the ammunition they need. They found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, and then at last, two came forward, which gave them enough of what they needed, and said, this man said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. So what's happening here is they're twisting Jesus' words, because he, he has said something like this. It's probably been three years since he said this. At the beginning of his ministry in John chapter 2, Jesus actually goes into the temple like he did on Monday of Holy Week, and he cleanses the temple the first time. He sees the same thing happening, people buying and selling, people profiting off of the worship, people come to worship God. And so Jesus, same way, filled with righteous anger, flips tables, drives the money changers out. The religious leaders approach him and like, what authority are you doing? Who do you think you are, essentially? And Jesus responds this way, destroy this, John 2, 19, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. And he's not talking about the actual temple building there. He's talking about himself. He's talking about his own body. But they twist his words and they falsely testify that he said he would destroy the temple building and this is what the high priest grabs onto. Look at verse 62. The high priest stands up and he said, have you no answer to make? Like, what are you gonna say for yourself? What is it that these men testify against you but Jesus remained silent? That's important. We're gonna come back to that at the end. The high priest said to him, I adjure you, By the living God, you tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said to him, you have said so, but I tell you from now on, you're going to see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, capital P, 
and coming on the clouds of heaven. And then the high priest tore his robes and, robe and said, he has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? So they wanted to accuse Jesus of blasphemy because under Jewish law, if you blaspheme God, you could be put to death. Verse 65 says Caiaphas responds by tearing his robes, which is interesting because Levitical law, chapter 10 and 21, says that the high priest were, was forbidden from tearing his robes. But this is how he responds to Jesus' claim about his identity, about who he is. And again, there's three things here. The first one that we saw, Jesus is the Christ. Verse 63, he says, I adjure you by the living God. You tell us if you are the Christ, the son of God. Jesus said to him, you said so. So Caiaphas is trying to get Jesus to blaspheme God. He's not wondering whether or not Jesus actually is the Christ. He's looking for it, right? He's baiting him into it. You tell us if you're Christ, if you're the son of God, and Jesus knows this, right? So this Christ, this is, we said it a bunch this series, this is a messianic title. This is the promised one that God said would come, that he would forever rescue Israel out from underneath their slavery, that he would restore them to their place of prominence where they would rule and reign with him forever. The Christ was this messianic title, and Jesus responds to, are you him? He says, you said it. And now, he's not dodging the question. He's not trying to, like Peter was, he's not about self-preservation, okay? When he says, you said it, the original language here, it's not, you said it, not me. It's, it's this idea of affirmation. So Jesus is actually doubling down. Are you the Christ? Are you the son of God? He affirms it. And then when he says, you said it, he's actually saying, and you, Caiaphas, high priest, you just affirmed it about me too, right? And again, Caiaphas isn't wondering if this is true, He's looking to catch him in his words. Look what he says. He said, you have said so, verse 64, but I tell you from now on, you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. So Jesus says, not only am I the Christ, I am the son of man. I am the son of man. Jesus knows what they're after. Just like he knew that Judas had come to betray him in the garden earlier in the chapter. He knows what they are after. And, he, and so he's essentially saying, do what you have to do, but I want you to know that from this moment on, you will see that I am who I claim to be. And I, not only am I the Christ, I am the son of man. This is a title, again, referenced in Matthew's gospel over and over. It's a reference to the book of Daniel, where the prophet Daniel has this vision of this throne room of God, and you have God, the father referred to as the ancient of days, the one who has always been, the one who will always be. And he sees one, Daniel sees one like the son of man who comes, and the ancient of days hands over to him all authority and all power over everything and everyone. This is, in the Jewish mind, the son of man was the king. He was gonna rule over everything and everyone forever. And Jesus says, not only am I the Christ, I'm the king. I'm the son of man. That's the second thing we see. Jesus is the king. He's saying, I have power and authority over everything and everyone. And imagine if you're Caiaphas in this moment. You're just trying to catch him claiming to be God. Tell us if you're the Christ, you're the son of God. He goes, yep. You said it, and by the way, I'm the son of man too. And in the Jewish mind, the, the son of man and the Christ weren't the same person. Two different people. And Jesus says, I am both. And this puts Caiaphas over the edge. He turns to the rest of the religious leaders, the council, the Sanhedrin, who was there, and he says, what else do we need to hear? We have heard enough, verse 66. And he says, what is your judgment? And they answered, he deserves death. And they spit in his face and they struck him and some slapped him saying, prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? Don't miss what's happening here. The high priest, Caiaphas, he was the one who was supposed to be the mediator between God and his people. 
he would once a year go into the Holy of Holies, into the place where God's presence was, and he would make a sacrifice, make atonement for the people of God and for their sin so that they could be right with God. He was the mediator. And you have here the high priest of God mocking and accusing God the Son. The one who Hebrews says is the great high priest over the house of God. And they spit in his face and says they struck him. That word literally means to hit with fists. And then they slap him, which means obviously hit with an open hand. And they mock him. They're playing games with him. They blindfold him, punch him, and say, if you're the Christ, who punched you? They're mocking him. They spit in his face. And again, all of this is around 3 o'clock on Friday morning. About six hours away from Jesus having nails driven through his hands so that he would be dying on a cross for you and me. And remember, before we get to that part of the story, all four gospel authors in Matthew here, they highlight a different part of the story. There's something they want us to know. He wants us to know where Peter was while all of this was happening. Look at verse 69. Now Peter's sitting outside in the courtyard and a servant girl came up to him and said, you also were with Jesus the Galilean. But he denied it, saying, I don't know what you mean. So as Jesus is in Caiaphas' house being falsely accused and beaten and spit on, Peter is sitting out in the courtyard with a group of guards and a portion of the mob that had been in the garden to arrest Jesus. John tells us it's cold that night, so they're sitting around a fire. So he's all the way up in the courtyard sitting around a fire, and this servant girl who apparently was with them and saw Peter in the, in the garden turns to Peter in front of everybody and says, you were with him. This is about relationship. What's Peter do? He denies it. He says, I don't know what you mean. Basically, he just plays dumb. He's like, I don't even know what you're talking about. Who? What? No. So he just plays dumb. And what's happening here is, is Peter knows who Jesus is. He knows Jesus is the Christ. He knows he is the king. But in this moment, he's denying Jesus. He's refusing to admit and acknowledge that's who Jesus is. And instead, he's trusting in his own authority. He's trusting in his own ability to save himself from the circumstances of his life. Look at verse 71. And when he went out to the entrance, which is real quick, now Peter isn't in the courtyard anymore. Denies Jesus once and now he's at the, the gate, which that's what sin does. Sin creates separation between us and God. Peter moves away from Jesus. He distances himself. And when he went out to the entrance, another servant girl saw him and she said to the bystanders, this man was with Jesus of Nazareth. And again, he denied it with an oath, I do not know the man. So now it's not, what are you talking about? What? Who? Right? It's not that anymore. It's, I know who you're talking about, and I don't know him. Right? Progression of sin. He's moved away from Jesus, and now he's following up even more so. He's saying, I don't know the man. Not only does Peter deny relationship with him, he won't even call him by name. There's an important detail we need to understand about this. A few hours earlier, before Jesus and his disciples when they, when they were in between the upper room, the Last Supper, and the Garden of Gethsemane, they're on the way, and it had been a sweet night of fellowship, and on the way, before they get to the garden, Jesus stops, and he turns, and he says to them, Matthew 26, verse 31, he says, you will all fall away because of me this night. That's awkward, isn't it? Like, you just had this great dinner, this great night of fellowship, and Jesus says, God's doing something new, my body broken for you, my blood shed for you, this is amazing, and then they're on the way to the garden, he stops, he turns around, they're like, what's he gonna say? By the way, you're all gonna abandon me. This is awkward. This is like the, the family member that we all have that makes every holiday meal weird because they have to stir the pot. Maybe you're that person. If you didn't laugh, that's, you're the one, okay? <laughs> you have to bring up politics, you know? That's what this would have felt like. Jesus interjects, 
by the way, tonight you will all fall away because of me. And Peter has to fill the space. Look how he responds, verse 33. He answered him, though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Essentially, they might, Matthew for sure, Mark probably, John, you know, he says that you love him the most. I doubt it. Though they may all fall away, I will never fall away. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Even if there's a sword at my throat and someone says, you, you say that Jesus is not Lord, he says, I ain't doing it. There is no way it's happening. They might, but it's not me, Lord. It's not happening. Again, Jesus says, hey, actually before the sun comes up, you're gonna deny me three times tonight. Look at verse 73. After a little while, the bystanders came up and said to Peter, certainly you too are one of them for your accent betrays you. So remember, Peter's already denied Jesus twice. He's declared a few hours before, it ain't happening. And now Luke says there was about an hour between his second denial and his third denial. Matthew just says it's a little while. So it's been about an hour. So the point is, Peter is still standing around. He still wants to see the end. He wants to see what's gonna happen to Jesus. He just doesn't wanna be seen doing it. And he's still standing by his claim, I don't know him. Don't know anything about him, have nothing to do with him. And so one of the guys that's standing there says, you've gotta be one of his followers because your accent's giving you away. Right? He, he can tell, you're a Galilean. So here's what's, what's happening. Israel's kind of like the U.S., only it's flipped, right? So Jesus and his disciples were from the north of Israel, and it's a more rural area, and so they had the same language, but a little bit of a draw. You know what I mean? They slow it down, round out the, the, the sounds. I couldn't even say that because I'm from the south. Um, and so, but down south, around the city of Jerusalem, they spoke more polished, more refined language, and so the, that's what they were saying. It's like if someone went from Savannah, they went to New York, and they're trying to explain how they're not from the South. And someone's like, it kind of sounds like you does. And no matter what you say to, to decriminate yourself, you incriminate yourself, right? No matter, the more that you talk, the more you're seen to be guilty. This is what's happening with Peter. And Matthew says, this, this was a bystander who says this, just some guy who was standing around. John's gospel actually says, gives us more detail. It says that it's the person who says this to him, your, your accent's giving you away, was actually a relative of the guy who Peter cut off his ear in the garden. So you're like, hey, my cousin was there, and so was I, and I saw you, and you cut his ear off, and then Jesus picked his ear and put it back on. Like, that's seared into his brain, okay? He, he's like, I recognize you, and your accent gives you away. He says, certainly you are one of them. And then after all of that, listen again how Peter responds, 74. Then he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know the man. I do not know the man. And all of a sudden, the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus, before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. This, this curse and swear here, when he says he invoked a curse and began to swear, that doesn't mean that he used four-letter words to make his point, okay? It's basic, that was a joke. No one laughed. Two times, two times in a row. Eight o'clock and 9.30, it's not gonna happen in the 11. <laughs> Learn from your mistakes. That's the point of this sermon. Um, it doesn't mean that he cursed, right? It means he's saying, I swear by fill in the blank the temple, God, whatever he said. It, it, what it means is Peter was doing everything he could to distance and disassociate himself with the Lord Jesus. And again, when, as he was saying this, it says the rooster crowed, and Peter remembered the saying of Jesus before the rooster crowed, you will deny me three times, and how's he respond? 
He went out of the courtyard, further distancing himself from Jesus, and he wept bitterly. Right? So Mark literally says, instead of he went out and wept bitterly, is he broke down and wept. The, it, it breaks Peter. When he remembers what Jesus said and when he realizes what he's done, it breaks him. Luke gives us another detail. He says that at the precise moment that Peter was saying, I do not know the man, the rooster crows, and at that moment, Jesus looks at Peter and they lock eyes. Try to wrap your mind around the majesty of divine providence to orchestrate that scenario. All the chaos of that night. It's three or 4 a.m., Jesus is arrested. There's dozens of soldiers involved, religious officials, the entire Sanhedrin moving Jesus from one courtyard to the other. Inside Caiaphas' house, you got false witness, one after the other after the other. Finally, what we read happens, Caiaphas, here's enough. He's condemned, he's considered guilty, he's beaten, spit on, mocked, slapped. Outside in the courtyard, three different people over the course of at least an hour accused Peter of having been with Jesus, and yet God so arranged that at the very moment that Peter's third denial comes out of his mouth, that a rooster crowed, Jesus is being brought by religious officials, beaten, bloody, spit on his face, face swollen, bound like a prisoner. He's brought out into the courtyard. Peter says it, the rooster crows, and they meet eyes. Jesus is the king. He is the king. And that look breaks Peter. Think for a moment about what he might have been feeling as Jesus, Jesus looks at him. Imagine the weight of guilt and shame to be completely overwhelmed and overcome with the thought that I am an absolute failure. I'm a failure. And maybe you've been there. Maybe you're there now. You do the thing you swore you would never do. You do the thing that you promised God you would never do again. And how do you feel? Imagine Jesus sees it all. Imagine if he was in the room. Imagine if he locked eyes with you when you did the thing you swore you would never do. You're flooded with guilt and shame. I am a horrible person. I'm a horrible father, a horrible husband, a horrible mother, a horrible Christian, a horrible whatever. Those thoughts flood our mind. And how do you respond? Matthew says, we saw the way Peter responds, he leaves the courtyard and weeps bitterly. And you know what's crazy? That is the last time Peter is mentioned by name in the Gospel of Matthew. So why? Why is this in the Bible? Why do all four Gospel authors highlight Peter's failure and his denial of Jesus? I think the answer to that is because, church, when we see how Jesus responds to Peter in his failure, then we can be confident and we can know how Jesus will respond to us when we fail. That's why this is in the Bible. Luke 22 says, immediately the rooster crowed, the Lord Jesus doesn't say anything, he just looks at Peter. Now there's a lot of different looks out there, right? Probably all said some version of, hey, don't give me that look. Or I know that look, which says that you can communicate with your eyes, with the things, the way that you look, you can say a lot by saying nothing. Here's the question. What do you think that, the look that Jesus gave Peter was like that night? What do you think that look was like? My guess is most of us think that Jesus would look at Peter the way that we would look at someone if they betrayed us. A look that says something along the lines of, how could you? How could you? You promised. You said you would never do this again. You said I could trust you. How could you do this to me? And the truth is we don't know what that look was like that Peter gave or that Jesus gave Peter. But there are some passages in the Bible that I think can give us a pretty good idea. I want to show you just a couple of those in the time we have left. So Mark chapter 16, turn there if you want. If not, it'll be on the screen. 
Mark chapter 16, it's early Sunday morning now. So remember, that happened early Friday morning, late Thursday night, 3 or 4 a.m., and now it's early Sunday morning. Not Palm Sunday, we're talking Easter Sunday, okay? A couple of women who were close to Jesus were going to his tomb, and they were hoping they could see his body, hoping they were bringing spices. They wanted to anoint him. Um, and as they get there, they're on the way. Uh, another gospel tells us that they're trying to figure out what are we gonna do when we get there because there's this massive rock that blocks it. And we wanna anoint his body. And they're like, we'll figure it out when we get there. As they walk up, they see that the, the stone had been moved. And they walk into the tomb, probably nervous to see what they're gonna find. And they're expecting to find Jesus' dead body. Instead, they see an angel. And this is the conversation that they have. Mark 16, verse six says, and he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. So look here, and then here's the command. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he's going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him just as he told you. Remember, the Bible teaches that angels stand ready to do the work of God, which means this. At some point, maybe that morning, the risen Jesus and this angel have a conversation. And he says, some, in a few moments, some women are gonna come, some of my closest friends, people I love most in the world. They're gonna come, and I want you to tell them that I'm alive. And I want you to tell them to go and tell the disciples that I'm alive. And listen, don't miss this detail. You have to hear this. The angel, he, Jesus says, and tell Peter I wanna see him. Specifically lists Peter by name. And then the angel's probably like, what about the others? Why just Peter? And they're like, hey, they're not gonna need any help coming. They know if they hear I'm alive, they're going. They're not gonna need any motivation. They're not gonna need any help. But you know what? Peter is. He's gonna be sitting in the corner. Praise God, Jesus is alive. I knew it. I'm a failure. I can't do it. He's everything I said I was. And he's gonna stay there. And the angel says, tell Peter specifically, I need him there. I need him to come to Galilee. And we know he goes. Because John chapter 21 says that Peter and some of the other disciples are fishing on the Sea of Galilee. And they've been fishing all night and they hadn't caught anything, okay? And Jesus is on the beach, they don't know it's him, and he calls out to them and he says what every person says to anyone they see fishing. Catch anything? That's what you say, right? You drive by, how you doing, any good? No, I got a cup. You know, that's what you have to, you have to have that obligatory conversation. So he says, hey, you catch anything? And they're like, no, actually, it's been a horrible night. It says they've been fishing all night and caught nothing. That's miserable, right? Can we imagine? Fishing all night, catching anything. And then he says this. He says, hey, why don't you try the other side of the boat? And this is an interesting detail, not part of the sermon. Don't have time for it. I'm going to say it anyways. They, they do. They tried the other side of the boat, which I can just, can I just be honest? I would not, okay? If I've been fishing all night, I'm a fisherman, at least before I started following Jesus, all night, frustrated, angry, cold, hungry. I'm on the, and then some guy says, how are you doing? You're like, terrible. And he's like, try the other side. You're like, no, 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 okay? <laughs> Would not do it. As crazy as they do, let's see it. Verse six, he said, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And so they cast it and now they were not able to haul it in because of the quantity of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved, which that's John, that's the way he referred to himself, which is awesome. The disciple Jesus loved therefore said to Peter, it is the Lord. And when Simon, this is beautiful, when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment for he was stripped for work and he threw himself into the sea. 
And the other disciples came in the boat dragging the net full of fish, for they were not far from land, but a hundred yards off. And when they got on land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you caught. And so Simon Peter went aboard, hauled the net ashore, full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net wasn't torn. And Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. The resurrected Jesus wants to share a meal with his disciples before he does anything else. And look at verse 15. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter. So this is the moment that Peter had been waiting for, waiting for right? He, he goes to Galilee. He believe, I guess the angel said that, that he wants to see me. Now, if you had done something like Peter had done to Jesus, and then you hear from an angel that Jesus wants to see you, what are you thinking he wants to talk about? You're thinking he's going, how could you? That's the conversation that he wants to have, right? That's what we would expect. And so this is the moment. Peter's like, okay, well, I had this meal. Maybe, maybe he was going to go easy on me, but now he's like, come on, Peter, let's go, talk. let's go chat. Pulls him to the side. He says, Simon Peter, and he calls him, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So um, this is interesting because Jesus hasn't called Peter that since they first met. Only twice in the Gospel of John, does Peter refer to, or does Jesus refer to Peter as Simon, son of the John? The first time is in chapter one when he meets Peter. Oddly enough, he's fishing on the Sea of Galilee when they meet. Not ironically, he's fishing. And the first thing Jesus does is he says, no, 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 you're Cephas, you're Peter. Gives him a new name in that first encounter. It's a, it's a name that means rock. It's a name that's connected to what Peter will be in the kingdom, who rather Peter will be in the kingdom. And then here on the beach in John 21, Jesus calls Peter a name he hasn't used since then. He says, Simon, son of John. And this isn't Jesus reminding Peter of his failure, right? This is, it's like if you ever had a nickname when you were little that nobody called you and no one's called you in decades, but your family did. And if someone were to call you that today, it would take you back to that place. It reminds you of the then, it reminds you of those relationships and who you were then. It would take you back to a place before you had made the name that you've made for yourself now. Whether that's a good name or a bad name, it would take you back. And this is what Peter's doing, or Jesus is doing. He's taking Peter back to before he walked on water and before he made a name for himself in ministry. So for the past couple of years, it's been, oh, there's Peter. There's, there's Peter in the stuff. That's the guy that walked on water. That's the guy that gets to be close to Jesus. That's the guy that was in the Mount of Transfiguration. He saw, the, he saw Jesus glorified. That's Peter. Jesus has taken Peter back to before he made a name for himself in ministry. He's also taken him back to before the denial. Before he had done anything to disqualify himself or qualify himself. And the reason why Jesus calls Peter Simon, son of John, is because Simon, son of John, was a nobody. He's a poor Galilean fisherman that no one knew. And the only biblical evidence, evidence we have about how good he was at fishing is that he wasn't good at fishing. He wasn't even good at his job. Jesus wants to take Peter back to that place and he wants him to remember, before you had done anything to offer me or done anything to disqualify yourself, I loved you. I called you to follow me from that place. I knew you, I saw you, I loved you. I loved you then. And he brings him to the beach in John 21, calls him Simon, son of John, because not only does he want Peter to know I loved you then, he wants him to know I love you now. My love for you has not changed. Look at verse 15. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Right? What a weird question to ask. Because who are these? The other disciples. 
So Jesus, after breakfast, brings Peter aside, calls him Simon, son of John, and then points to their disciples and goes, do you love me more than they do? And that's a weird question to ask. It seems cruel, but isn't that what Peter claimed right before Jesus was arrested? Even if they all fall away, I would never, even if I must die, I will not deny you. And Jesus doesn't ask him, hey, Peter, are you going to deny me again? He says, do you love me? He goes after the symptom of the sin, not the sin. Three times Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And what was underneath the denial of Peter was that he loved himself. He was confident in himself. Even if they do, I will never. I will never deny you. And Jesus wants that to be pulled out, his self-confidence, and for it to be replaced with something that can actually sustain and satisfy him. And church, for all of us, underneath our greatest acts of sin is what we really love. And if we only repent of our sin and not the motivation for that sin, then we're doomed to live on a cycle of failure where we're self-confident until we mess up and we self-destruct and then we spend our life in self-loathing until enough time passes or we do enough good things to feel confident in ourselves again and then it starts over. And many of us live that Christian life and we wonder, why is it not working? Why do these things keep coming back up? Why do I keep struggling with these problems? And in digging into Peter's failure, Jesus changes Peter's heart. Look at verse 17. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. So the Bible says after this third question comes from Jesus, Peter is grieved. Grieved, just like he was in that courtyard a couple days before. But in his grief, instead of abandoning Jesus and claiming that he doesn't know him, he looks right at him and he says, Lord, you know everything. You know all of me, all my failure, everything, and you know that I love you. Do you see the shift there? From I will never deny you to Lord, you know everything. What's happening here, Peter believes the gospel over his past and it changes his life that Jesus could know all of him and it could cover his shame and his grace. So early on Friday morning in the courtyard of the high priest, Jesus, or, or Peter denies Jesus as Christ and king. He denies Jesus as Christ and king, but here on the beach, he began to embrace in its fullness who Jesus really is. Remember I said there are three things in this passage that Jesus says about himself. One, he's Christ. Two, he's king. And then there's one more. Look back at verse 62. Matthew 26, the high priest stood up and said, have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But Jesus remained silent. Does that remind you of anything? Matthew's referencing Isaiah 53, which is a prophecy about Jesus. It'll be on the screen. It says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, trusting our own kingship, our own authority, our own ability to save us. We've all turned away. The Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Jesus says, I'm the Christ, I'm the king, and I'm the lamb. Jesus is the lamb. This is what he meant earlier when he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. The blood that you used to rely on, the blood of a lamb, 
once a year, every year, to make atonement for your sin that happened every year, I'm the sacrifice, Hebrews says, once and for all. This is my blood which is poured out, he says, for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is saying, every year you do this, but now God is doing something new. And Peter learned on that beach that Jesus is the lamb. Before that conversation on the beach, Peter was convinced he was too much of a failure. He was interested enough to go because the angel said, I'll go to Galilee, I'll see what he has to say. But when, when Jesus said, come on, come on over, let's have a chat. He's, he's haunted in the background by, I've, I've gone too far, I'm too much of a failure. There's no way that Jesus could love me and restore me back into ministry. And Jesus, at the end of this conversation, in verse 19, after, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He says this. After these things, he says, follow me. He invites him back into the same relationship he had before because that relationship wasn't built on what Peter had done in the first place. It's built on what Christ would do. So let me ask you this. What do you think the look that Jesus gave Peter in the courtyard was like now? How could you? No. The way Jesus responds to Peter's failure, church, is the same way he responds to yours and mine. And this is what we celebrate at the cross. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, we too can find grace to not only forgive our sin, but to cover our shame. God's love for you isn't based on what you do, it's based on what Christ has done. And I know I say some version of that every single time I have a microphone on my face up here, but that's because I am convinced that if we actually believed it, it would transform our lives. It would change this church if we believed that God's love for us isn't based on what we do or haven't done. It is based completely on who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. It would change things. Here's how I wanna close. I want you to hear the last recorded words in the scripture from Peter, okay? And just a, a caveat here. If you have an experience like that with the resurrected Jesus on that beach in John 21, do you think your life's changed forever? Do you think every time you think about him or write about him or say something to someone about him, you're not, you don't have that in the background? Of course you do, okay? So here's this, 2 Peter 3, verse 18. He says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity, amen. Peter is saying this from a place of experience. He's saying, here, 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 you want life to go the way you want it to be? Grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord Jesus and Savior, Jesus Christ. You know who he is and what he's accomplished. You spend your life trying to understand that it's true, believe that it's true in your heart, and get your feet founded on the rock, that not only is Jesus the Christ, he's the only savior who can give us the life we want, he's the king. He's the one with all authority who deserves every bit of our allegiance and our worship, and not only is he Christ and he's king, he is the lamb, he is the lamb of God who came and lived and died in our place to take away the sins of the world, so that you and me can live our lives in right standing with God forever. That's what makes us Christians. Faith in Jesus, belief. That's what makes us a church or a group of people who believe that that's true about who he is and what he's done. Let me pray for us and then we're going to respond in singing this morning. If you would bow your head, Lord, thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Pray for the folks in this room, God, where they are challenged, God, would they wrestle with the ways and spaces where they have looked to other saviors and thought that they knew better. Would you help us to rely on your sacrifice for us, which Hebrews says is once for all. We need your help for that. 
pray that you help us to be the church, God, that we would be convinced today of your love for us. By the power of your Holy Spirit, God, would you convince us that you love us and would you compel us by that good news to go and be the church. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and respond in singing.